1: In 2008, a friend of mine invited me as an atheist college student to see a film entitled Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed. And I believe that film was the starting point of taking down obstacles for me before I came to my faith in Christ. And one man that was featured over and over again as somebody who was poking the hornet's nest of the scientific community was none other than Dr. Stephen C. Meyer, and apparently he's continued to poke that hornet's nest in his latest book, The Return of the God Hypothesis. And with us today on the Good Fight Radio Show, joining me is none other than Dr. Stephen C. Meyer. I want to welcome you to the Good Fight Radio Show.
2: Uh, Thanks for having me on, Chad.
1: Well, you know, as I said, and I hadn't even told you this in intro, I am excited to have you because personally, your work had an amazing effect on me because I do believe watching that film in 2008 uh, was just before I came to Christ in 2009 and it really did remove a lot of obstacles because I had trusted that when I came to the scientific community maybe I didn't understand but you know if I appealed to that authority they would know how to answer the reason for you know the origin of the universe how it all started abiogenesis something and when I watched that film I realized that their answers were no good and you were a big reason for that
2: well, a lot of people have th- that same assumption that the uh, scientific community has the uh, uh the questions of biological origins in particular all sewn up. but when you get into the the evidence uh it turns out that it's no such n- n- no no such si- situation prevails uh, in particular with the question the vexing question of the origin of the first life, many people don't know that Darwin... Uh, did not attempt to answer the question of the origin of life. He had a brief speculation that he offered about it in a, in a uh, letter to a friend, Joseph Hooker, about life emerging from some simpler chemicals in a what he called a warm little pond. Uh, but <clears throat> in 160-some-odd years since Darwin's publication of the origin of the species, scientists are no uh, c- closer to understanding how life would have evolved via an undirected, a uh, chemical evolutionary process where chemical evolution refers to the process of, uh, life coming from non-life, from simpler non-living chemicals. And, uh, that was one of the things that was discussed in the, in the film Expelled. And there was, a, of course, a telling interview at the end where Ben Stein, the, 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 the host of the, the, the documentary, uh, got, um, Richard Dawkins, to acknowledge that uh, neither he nor anyone else knew how life had arisen by an undirected chemical evolutionary process. And instead, Dawkins actually speculated that, yeah, there may well be a signature of intelligence inside life, in the, and then he posited that perhaps life had been seeded here on an, from another planet by an intelligent designer of, a, of an extraterrestrial kind. So it was, a, it was a surprising twist at the end of the film, where even the world's most... Uh, uh, prominent scientific atheist uh, acknowledged that there may be evidence of intelligent design, but not a, a design he was willing to consider might have come from uh, a, 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 an ultimate creator.
1: Yeah, and I have to be honest, it's funny you bring that one up because specifically that and people talking about stuff on the backs of crystals in that film and whatnot, I, I think it was that one, that specific, no non-weird answer that for me was kind of a, a kick in the gut because I was like, man, I thought at least they would have some answers to this. And, you know, having aliens drop off some goo or something, you know, I just thought this was just not what I was expecting. And I, I thought that was really interesting. And if you guys haven't checked out the film, we'll put a link in the description. I would love for you guys to check it out um, because people were publishing your work and then they were getting, I mean, they were getting maligned. Uh, there were some, some tenure problems. Could you just go into that a little bit before we talk about your well, new book?
2: Yeah, sure. The, the, the beginning of the film uh, was, this, was t- telling the story of uh, five scientists who had been effectively expelled from the academy because they had come to perceive that there was evidence of design, of intelligent design in life and the universe. And one of the, 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 the stories that Ben Stein Uh, told intersected with some of my work in the following way. Uh, I I published uh, an article, a peer reviewed article, advancing the theory of intelligent design in 2004 at uh, a journal called the Proceedings of the Biological Society of Washington, which was the uh, technical journal of the Smithsonian Institution. And while nothing happened to me, the editor who allowed the paper to go through peer review and then subsequently published it upon receiving favorable peer review reports was, uh, uh, was persecuted in a fairly aggressive way. His name is Richard Sternberg. He has two earned PhDs in biology, one in mathematical biology. He's quite a genius. He had at that point 40 peer reviewed papers. I don't know how many he has now. Uh, but, uh the, after, after the the paper was published, the, the the museum started receiving angry letters from subscribers to the journal, and an emergency meeting was convened by the uh, organ the the organization that oversaw the publication of the journal, and the president of the that organization told. Uh, Dr. Sternberg that he should not come to the meeting, even though he was the editor of the journal, because tempers were running so high, he couldn't guarantee his personal safety. Eventually, he was uh, 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 transferred out from under the supervisorship of a, of a, a friendly colleague. He was denied access to his office, his scientific samples, his keys were taken away, and he was placed in an office next to an administrator where they could, quote, keep an eye on him, and on a parallel track, the people began to, from the museum, apparently we're not exactly sure, but people started to make inquiries with the National Institutes of Health, where he held a, a, a dual appointment, and were trying to get him fired. And it took the intervention of a U.S. senator to protect his job there, even though that wasn't even the, the entity that was had published the journal. Uh, so it was really a horrific experience, and, and finally. Uh, it was the 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 hostility there was was such that uh, he ended up leaving the the Smithsonian Institution altogether.
1: Yeah, you know it's it's interesting because when I was in college, that first semester after becoming a believer, I had taken an English course, and the required reading, the first two readings were Darwin and then Stephen Jay Gould, and so those were the first two readings, and. We were then required to give uh, a final paper, and on the final paper, we had to get it approved by him because he didn't want to debate abortion and so forth, uh, and so I actually said, I want to debate on intelligent design, and then he's like, I don't know. I said, hey, here's the video, and I gave him expelled, no intelligence allowed, and he said, you know what? And I think it kind of played because he's a college professor, and he didn't like the fact that people were getting blackballed, even though he disagreed with them. And he let me write the paper. And then the next semester, he actually told a friend of mine, he's like, Yeah, I think there is uh, an intelligent designer behind all this. So there was some, some good Oh, interesting. In my first you actually semester. persuaded
2: your professor. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. With my first well, paper I mean, in college. Good, good
2: for him for at least being open to the debate. That's, that's a big part of academic freedom. And the story of the expelled began with the story of the abridgment of the academic freedom of some very prominent scientists. And in the case of Sternberg, um, you know, he wasn't even the author of the paper. And there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about the case, and the writer there said, you know, Sternberg wasn't even the heretic. It was that guy Meyer out there in Seattle at the Discovery <laughs> Institute. It was So uh, anyway, yeah, there, there have been many such cases like that. But I think when you, when you see that type of behavior among scientists, it's actually, a, it's actually a tell. And it's a tell of weakness, of intellectual insecurity. You, you don't need to resort to those tactics if you're confident of your case. And as we've made the case first against uh, chemical evolutionary theory and indeed biological evolutionary theory, that is neo-Darwinism, and then subsequently the positive case for intelligent design. More and more scientists have been persuaded by the arguments that we've made But there has been a kind of rearguard action among people in the scientific establishment. Well, I wouldn't say the scientific establishment. It's the the evolutionary establishment. It's Mm. the Darwinian establishment. And they've tried to shut down the debate and made it very difficult for people who are raising questions about what is now a 160-year-old theory um, from coming from, from coming to the surface, but i 'm you know I think the situation has changed a lot since two thousand and four when I published that paper um, and uh, just the, the network of scientists who are interested in intelligent design the evidence for intelligent design, and the way in which the concept of design can be used as a uh, what's called a heuristic in science a guide to further research and uh, we have scientists now all over the world some of uh, whose research we're supporting through the Discovery Institute, others are who are doing this independently, who are <coughs> finding more and more evidence of design and biology in particular, but also using the concept of intelligent design to make predictions about what one ought to find when you, when, when someone looks at life. And one of the, the first key predictions, in fact, one that was made by Richard Sternberg very early on, uh, was the idea that the junk DNA, the... Um, so-called, uh, the, the, so-called D, the DNA that performs no function as far as building proteins uh, isn't junk, that it does perform important functions, and that has now been uh, verified by some, some very important research that was published in 2011 out of something called the ENCODE Project. So, those of us who were sympathetic to design or open to the, to the possibility of it thought, well, maybe these big sections of the genome that aren't coding for proteins are still doing something important. Uh, which is what we'd expect if life had been intelligently designed. Lo and behold, those non-coding regions of the genome are functioning much like an operating system in a computer that is coordinating the timing and the expression of the data files that do code for proteins. So it's what we've, what's we've what been discovered is that the, the genome is uh, uh, part of a hierarchical uh, information processing system that is just mind blowing in its complexity, and uh, it's reminiscent of of things that we have in our own high tech digital world that our own software and hardware engineers design, but it's much more sophisticated than that. So uh, <clears throat> we're seeing design at every level of life, and it, that's a great way to look at life and a great great way to study it from the assumption that it's designed. But we also have evidence of of that design. So that's it's kind of a twofold thing. A good scientific research program will have an argument for a perspective, but then once that perspective is reasonably well established in the minds of at least some scientists, then those scientists use that to guide further research. And we're into that stage of the research program now, and I think that's very exciting.
1: No, oh, that is really exciting to hear, and I, and I love people to hear that. And, you know, you were also the author of two other books, Signature in the Cell, and then Darwin's Doubt as well. And would you say, when it comes to the return of the God hypothesis, that this one right here kind of i don't know i think it plays really well with those other two as well
2: well it was intended to build off of the argument that i made in the first two books and you mentioned the or i maybe i brought it up the alien designer hypothesis of richard <laughs> dawkins um i think he now would would disavow that i think he was uh he felt that he uh, he he, he was sorry he got into that, I think it would be fair to say, but there have been scientists going back to Francis Crick and Fred Hoyle, very prominent scientists who have proposed the idea that, um, yes, uh, there is evidence of design in life, but it must have come from some sort of intelligence within the cosmos, a kind of uh, uh, um, imminent intelligence, uh, an alien being of some kind. Um, And, Uh, and so in the first book I argued for intelligent design without attempting to settle the question or argue for one perspective or another about the, about who the designing agent might be is an imminent intelligence within the cosmos. That's a logical possibility, not one that I'm favorable to, but it's a logical possibility. Another possibility is that the design, the designer responsible for life and the universe is a transcendent intelligence. In other words, God. And so I, I, in the new book, I decided to address this question of the identity of the designing intelligence. I'd had lots of uh, uh, readers ask me, "Well, who do you think the designer is, and what can science tell us about that question?" So, um, so that's that's kind of where I picked up the, the discussion in the new book, "Return to the God Hypothesis," where I made a case for not just a designing intelligence of some kind, but rather a designing intelligence who has the attributes that Jews and Christians and other traditional theists have long ascribed or associated with the concept of God, transcendence, um, uh, intelligence, and therefore uh, we're talking about a personal entity, not, a, not an impersonal force, and, uh, and also an entity that is capable and willing to act within the universe long after the beginning of the universe, so not a deistic creator either.
1: Yeah, you know, in, in the book, you talk about this X factor in terms of the scientific explosion in Europe, and you talk about some differences, and maybe you explain to the audience, maybe some of the differences when it comes to the God of the Hebrew Bible versus maybe even, you know, not, not just other gods, but also maybe Platonic or Epicurean philosophy as well.
2: Well, I, I the book, in addition to addressing this question of the Um, uh, identity of the designing intelligence responsible for life in the universe, the book also tells a story, and that is the story of Western science, that it arose in a decidedly Judeo-Christian milieu or context in Western Europe, and it did so for specifically Judeo-Christian, indeed even biblical reasons, and you can see that in the metaphors that the early scientists used to describe nature. They talked about nature as a book, uh, contrasting it with the book of Uh, scripture, that just as God had revealed himself in scripture, he also reveals himself in nature, and that nature was intelligible uh, as a book because it had been uh, uh, designed by a rational intellect, namely God, who uh, built rationality, design, and order into the universe, and we could understand it. it, therefore it was intelligible to us, because it had Uh, He made our minds in his image and gifted our minds with the same rationality that he himself had, which is reflected in the design of the universe itself. Uh, The early scientists also talked about the the idea that nature was lawful, that the concept of the laws of nature was unique to the period of the scientific revolution. And it, it was, a, as one historian of science says, it was a juridical metaphor of theological origins. The idea was that there was law-like order in the universe because there was a lawgiver and someone who sustained those laws, again, namely God. And so the origins of modern science are decidedly Judeo-Christian. They have, there, there's a, there are presuppositions about nature and about the nature of God that make science possible. And I explain that in these first few chapters of the book, but then also tell the story of how that perspective was lost during the, the 19th century, largely because of theories of origin that were proposed. That that uh, essentially, as one, <coughs> as the story goes, with one scientist, that uh, he said uh, he had no need of that hypothesis, and that that uh, the origin of the solar system, the origin of the great geological features on planet Earth, the origin of uh, life and new life forms could all be explained as the result of unguided, undirected natural processes such that um, the simplest overall worldview perspective was that of naturalism. Nature was eternal and self-existent and could account for, uh, and self-organizing so that everything could arise from prior self-existent matter and energy that had been eternally here. So um, that perspective kind of came to dominate by the end of the 19th century. And into the early 20th century. And uh, then the last part of the book uh, discusses three big discoveries that are challenging that perspective of scientific naturalism or scientific materialism and uh, and causing, I think, uh, a return of first intelligent design, but also uh, a specific kind of a design hypothesis, namely a God hypothesis.
1: No, I, I love that ab- about the book. And in the, just the first couple chapters, you really do go into detail about where the origins of this science versus God, science versus faith kind of debate. Because, you know, if I'm out on the streets and I want to share the gospel with someone, a lot of times the first thing I hear, oh, I believe in science. And then you have to ask, what, what does that even mean? Uh, well, you believe in God, I believe in science. And I'm like, well, I believe in good science, <laughs> you know? But maybe maybe go into with the audience a little bit about just some of the history of this idea of God being against science and science being against God and so forth
2: right well that's really a late 19th century invention of certain uh, revisionist historians uh, because and I think many contemporary historians of science I, I would say most contemporary historians of science who study the period of the scientific revolution realize that The science started as a theological project. It was an attempt to reveal, as one historian of science, Rodney Stark, has put it in the title of a famous book, for the glory of God. Science was being pursued, or what was then called natural philosophy, was being pursued as a way of revealing the handiwork of God. And this was implicit in Newton's great work, the Principia. He was trying to reveal the mathematical principles of the universe that he believed were an expression of, 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 of divine action, of the way God was ordering the universe on a moment by moment basis. So the idea that science and religion, or still less even science and the, uh, Christian religion or the Jewish faith, were are in some way at odds with one another is something that was um, really invented by historians of the late 19th century. Now, they were writing at a time when there was tension between science and faith, and that came about largely because of uh, Darwin's uh, theory of uh, the um, origin of species by natural selection and the interpretation of of, um, that work as being something that was supporting the idea that there was no design in nature uh, which was also I think what Darwin intended uh to convey, uh so there was a tension between that theory and, and a and a theological perspective, but that was by no means the overriding uh perspective uh or 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 the overriding way of characterizing the relationship between science and faith over the, the preceding centuries and as i show in the book uh there may be good reasons to doubt the darwinian account of the origin of life and especially its its denial of design so um so uh, this is i i don't think there is an inherent conflict between science and faith but there were there were prominent voices in the late 19th century who conveyed that idea and that that perspective is obviously still with us. Many of the popularizers of science today, whether we think about Neil uh, deGrasse Tyson or Bill Nye the science guy, or especially the aggressive new atheists such as uh, Lawrence Krauss and Richard Dawkins have all conveyed the idea that science properly understood undermines belief in God and uh, therefore is not a belief that rational people really should hold. Um, But that's... Part was also part of the reason that I wrote the book. I wanted to show that the exact opposite is true, that the great discoveries of the 20th and 21st century uh, centuries about especially biological and physical and cosmological origins definitely do support, uh, they don't undermine belief in God. They're not merely neutral. I think they have decidedly theistic implications. That is, they support the idea of, a, of an intelligent and transcendent creator.
1: You know, it's interesting you mentioned Lawrence Krauss right there, and right at the very beginning of the book, I believe it's in the prologue, you talk about how you were set to debate him but something interesting actually was going on with you specifically when you're attempting to debate a, a very heady and, and important topic with him. Maybe if you can give a, a little hint on there and, and let our readers know what was going on. And I think that probably helped you. Would you agree? Write this. Well, book there was a well? silver
2: lining in it, but I had a bad night at, at the University of Toronto <laughs> yeah. a few years ago when I was set to debate Lawrence Krauss and a prominent theistic evolutionist named Dennis Lamoureux. It was a sort of a three-way conversation, but it was clearly a debate. And each, each person got to make an opening statement. And and then there was to be a discussion afterwards among the three of us. And about 18 minutes into my opening statement, I started to develop a migraine. And uh, bright lights had been a trigger for me, but I never had one in front of a live audience like that. And uh, I, what happens to me with migraines, or did, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunately in a much better place with that, having gotten some good neurological advice and taking some... Uh, magnesium supplements that have been very effective for me at least. Mm, um, in any case, I um, found that I, I was starting to have trouble reading my slides. It was a PowerPoint presentation. And then I was having trouble um, <clears throat> pulling words and my voice began to echo in my head. And um, and so it was, it was just sort of very disorienting. And it was a 25-minute opening statement. And I, I slowed down and kind of got through the rest of it by using really simple uh, phrases and just just did the best I could. And a a very kind uh, Canadian doctor who had been uh, shepherding me since picking me up at the airport before the debate uh, took me to a dark room and covered my eyes and uh, went after the third person had made his opening statement, uh, asked, do you want to try to do the discussion? I did the best I could. At the very end, the, some of the symptoms started to diminish, and the uh, moderator asked us each to sum up our positions. And so I, um, uh, being a bit short for words, uh, found that I you know, needed to say something quite succinct, and I m- noted that there were three big discoveries that had been made in the last uh, 100 years or so that, to me, seemed to support theism the topic of the debate was what lies behind it all and i had come hoping not just to talk about intelligent design but also this question of the identity of the designing intelligence K- krauss was known for work on or for a book that he'd written called universe from nothing which is a uh, popularization of something called qu- quantum cosmology which has been used as a kind of uh materialistic account of the origin of the universe itself a, a, an account that um is meant to refute the cosmological argument for the existence of God, and uh, argue that you know that uh, the, the universe could well have popped into existence from literal, literally nothing, uh, uh, save the the laws of physics that allow for that possibility. And so I had come prepared to discuss that with him, but um, uh, in the end, with the migraine and the way the debate ended up going, it mainly was it ended up being a discussion of the opening statement that I made about the case for intelligent design and biology. In any case, at the end of the debate, we were asked to sum up our positions. And I said, well, you know, I think there, there are three big discoveries that have been made that, to me, point to God as the reality behind everything that I think support what's called classical theism. And the discoveries are that, first, the universe had a beginning. Second, the universe has been finely tuned against all odds and for no apparent underlying physical reason for the possibility of life from the very beginning of the universe. And thirdly, that, the, um, that inside even the simplest living cells, we have found evidence of complex digital nano, digital and nanotechnology information in, present in the DNA molecule. And given what we know about the origin of information always coming from an intelligent source, that suggests to me a master programmer for life. And so I summarized these three big discoveries very briefly at the end of the debate and found that, and then it got a lot of email from people who, of course, felt badly for me having a migraine in such a high-profile setting and that sort of thing. But many of them said the one thing that really stood out to me about the substance of the debate was your closing statement about those three big discoveries, and that seemed Several people said that seemed very compelling to them and they'd like to know more. And so I thought "Eh, it might be time to write the book about the identity (laughs) of the designing intelligence and discuss those three big discoveries. And in the process, of course, if you've read the book, you know that I also uh, take on this idea of quantum cosmology and that the universe might have uh, arisen from nothing at all but the laws of physics and show that even if that's true, even if the quantum cosmological account of the origin of the universe is correct, it too has uh, tacit theistic implications it seems in a subtle it it also supports in a perhaps subtle way the reality of god and just briefly on that point if life or if the universe arose from pre-existing laws of physics where laws of physics are mathematical descriptions of how nature in this case will work because there's not a natural world yet that's a very strange kind of thing to assert because the laws of physics being purely mathematical are therefore conceptual and concepts and mathematical ideas only in our experience exist in minds. And so, as one of the great quantum cosmologists, uh, Alexander Vilenkin has has pointed out, if or has asked, he says, if if we're saying that the universe came from pre-existing uh, mathematical ideas, does that mean we're saying that it, that a mind predated the universe? So, anyway, we can get more into that. But yes, it was a it was a an encounter that at the time was very, uh, I think, unpleasant and unfortunate for people who were hoping I would have done a better job in the debate, for sure. But uh, something really good came out of it, which was some clarity of thought about where I wanted to go next in my writing, and also some insights about this idea of quantum cosmology and the claim that the universe could have arisen from literally nothing at all, and therefore there was no need to posit God as the creator of the universe.